So we're doing a podcast. It's called After Lives with Kara Cooney. That, that's are. me. I'm Kara Cooney. Yeah. I'm Jordan. So what are we going to discuss in the podcast? Anything and everything. We're going to talk about the ancient world, the modern world, the intersections between. We're going to talk about academia, mm-hmm. the, the career path that some of us stupidly choose, universities and the education world, feminism, masculinity, the patriarchy. I think anything's up for grabs. Yes. Yeah. Anything we can relate back to Egypt, which is yeah. everything. On the 30th of November, 1922, London newspaper The Times published the first report of King Tutankhamun's tomb. In a short article, the Times journalist announced the discovery taking place in Luxor. The news went as follows, quote, An Egyptian treasure, great find at Thebes, Lord Carnarvon's long quest, from our Cairo correspondent, The Valley of the Kings, by runner to Luxor. November 29. This afternoon, Lord Carnarvon and Mr. Howard Carter revealed to a large company what promises to be the most sensational Egyptological discovery of the century. The find consists of the funerary paraphernalia of the Egyptian king Tutankhamun, one of the famous heretic kings of the 18th dynasty who reverted to Amen worship. End quote. The announcement was small, It occupied two columns about halfway through the issue. Other, more important news dominated the cycle. And the report coming out of Luxor, Egypt, was light on details. There was a tomb, it had funeral paraphernalia, and it belonged to King Tutankhamen. Beyond that, there was not much to say. Fair enough. In 1922, the public had little knowledge of Tutankhamun, and with no sketches, photos, or film the announcement may have seemed insignificant. Nevertheless, this was the start of a now-famous story. Not the story of the tomb, per se. That began years earlier. No, this was the story of... stories. Over the next few years, news reports, rumours, gossip, and discourse would run rampant. At times, events surrounding the tomb would eclipse news of the excavation itself. And the seeds of that phenomenon were already present in the first Times report. To get the public up to speed, the Times included discussion of historical context. Moving forward, newspapers would commission expert commentary. Historians, archaeologists, museum curators, all would contribute to the public discourse. Most of the time, this was valuable information. But sometimes, it strayed into unwelcome, even damaging, speculation. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The report closed with a summary of what had happened so far, how Carter and his team had searched the Valley of the Kings, and what they hoped to find. The Times account finished as follows. Quote, The remarkable discovery announced today is the reward of patience, perseverance, and perspicacity. For nearly 16 years, Lord Carnarvon, with the assistance of Mr. Howard Carter, has been carrying out excavations on the west bank of the Nile. 
Great was the speculation in regard to the contents of the chamber. Would one of the missing kings be found inside? Little did Lord Carnarvon and Mr Carter suspect the wonderful nature of the contents of the chambers. The sealed outer door was carefully opened, an entrance was effected, and when at last the excavators managed to squeeze their way in, an extraordinary sight met their eyes, one that they could scarcely credit. End quote. The discovery was exciting, and people immediately began speculating. What would the archaeologists find? Treasures, of course, but what about history? Could the tomb of Tutankhamun contain information that was relevant to Moses, for example? Could it provide details relating to the God of Abraham, the deity worshipped in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity? In those early days, anything seemed possible. Before too long, the tomb of Tutankhamun became big news, and inevitably, rumours and gossip started to form a whirlwind of excitement and speculation. Chapter 10. The Choices of Lord Carnarvon The tomb of Tutankhamun is famous for many reasons. One of the more persistent reasons is the curse, quote-unquote. A story alleging that people who visited the tomb suffered death from the magic of the pharaohs. The curse narrative hangs around. No matter how much energy scientists devote to the genuine finds, people still talk about this idea. I don't want to spend too much time on this topic. For one thing, it has very little to do with Tutankhamun itself. The curse is more about politics, media, and publicity. So I will try to keep this brief. In future, there will be opportunities to discuss the modern side of the excavation in more detail, and we can examine the curse from various scientific or historical perspectives. Today, I would like to stay as close as possible to the tomb and its excavators. Also, before we begin, I should lay my tarot on the table. I don't believe in curses, or magic, ghosts, or monsters. I love a ghost story. Since childhood, I've had a macabre streak a mile wide. I have seen death firsthand at an early age, and I know the influence that loss and fear can have on a person. But in my experience, curses and magic have more psychological power than anything metaphysical or supernatural. If you go looking for unexplained phenomena, I think you will find it more in the realm of human behaviour. I mention this to put my discussion in context. I am coming at this topic from a sceptical mindset. To me, anyone saying that curses or ghosts are real must prove their reality and existence. To date, no one has done so. That being said, I will report these events and people's response as clearly and dispassionately as I can. As much as possible, I will avoid sensationalism or excessively negative criticism. Sometimes I will need to question or critique people's behaviour, but I will stick to the facts as much as possible. This is a curious tale, and I will treat every aspect of this story with proper consideration. With that in mind, let's explore the controversies and the curse around Tutankhamun's tomb. There are several controversies around the excavation. The first took place in the media. After the initial discovery in late November 1922, 
the excavators tried to keep things quiet. Howard Carter and his patron Lord Carnarvon had a difficult task ahead, and they had to manage many groups, expectations, and challenges. At first, the excavators followed basic protocol. They informed the local authorities, and they told various colleagues whose help they were going to need. But overall, the group tried to avoid alerting the press. In the first few days, they needed to plan and organise the excavation. It would be easier to do that quietly. To keep things manageable, Carter and Carnarvon held an unofficial opening of the tomb on November 29th. They invited members of the government, including the local governor, His Excellency Abdel Aziz Bey Yahya, and Lord Allenby, the British High Commissioner for Egypt. They also invited scholars, including Nina and Norman de Garris Davies, two Egyptologists famous for their artistic work. Carter and Carnarvon invited ministers from the local government, and they invited a man named Arthur Merton. This last one was important. Arthur Merton was a journalist. He worked for The Times in London, and it was his article that appeared on November 30th. Merton started the media reporting around King Tutankhamun's tomb, and he was the first journalist that we know about on the site. Allegedly, Merton was a friend of Howard Carter, and as far as we can tell, he was the only journalist that they invited officially. In other words, when Carter and Carnarvon opened the tomb to a few people, they only brought one journalist. That was a bit of a problem. The opening on November 29th marked the first in a series of controversies. This one focused on media access to the tomb and the reporting of its discoveries. The tale is complicated, but long story short, Arthur Merton and the Times newspaper he reported were the first ones invited to report on the discovery. So an English lord, Lord Carnarvon, an English excavator, Howard Carter, were giving this scoop to an English paper, the Times. They did this for an Egyptian tomb. That did not look so good. 1922 was a big year in the history of modern Egypt. In March, the Kingdom of Egypt, quote-unquote, had achieved formal independence from Great Britain. But British troops were still in the country, martial law was still in effect, and the government itself kept changing. So politically, this was a sensitive period. Many people and groups were keeping an eye on developments. And the discovery of Tutankhamun's burial was an obvious point of concern. Officially, the Egyptian government should be in control of the excavation. But the British and other countries had their own history with archaeology. And since the excavators were themselves British, well, let's just say that many people had reason to worry. Would Lord Carnarvon or the British government insist on a share of the finds? Would treasures from the tomb leave Egypt to foreign museums? In the early days, that must have been a genuine concern. So when Carter and Carnarvon invited a small group to the tomb on November 29th, the presence of just one journalist from an English newspaper raised eyebrows. Why was no one else invited? And why did the scoop go to a foreign paper for a discovery on Egyptian soil? Shouldn't a local company get the opportunity? Questions like these might seem trivial today, but they were important. 
as Carter and Carnarvon began their excavation, their choices were going to shape public perception. This was a delicate path. If they chose wrongly, the tomb could become a lightning rod for political disputes. As Egyptian leaders and communities began to experience more autonomy and local power, their perception of foreign influence was sensitive. If they weren't careful, Carter and Carnarvon might alienate or outrage a great many people. Unfortunately, that is exactly what they did. In January 1923, Lord Carnarvon made an announcement. Two months after finding the tomb, he had decided to publish the news exclusively through one newspaper. Can you guess which one he chose? Lord Carnarvon made a deal with The Times in London. They would have the first rights to report and document the excavation. Moving forward, only The Times could access the tomb. Everyone else, every journalist and paper, would have to go through them. The other papers would need to buy articles and photos from The Times. In effect, Carnarvon sold the rights to King Tutankhamun's burial to one paper only. That was a big deal. The decision to give the Times an exclusive contract caused controversy. Obviously, other newspapers were annoyed that they now had to get their news second-hand. Every outlet was at the mercy of the Times, who could demand any price they liked for the information. For some, that made the news of Tutankhamun's burial prohibitively expensive. For others, it seemed like an insult. In particular, the fact Carnarvon sold the rights to an English paper rather than an Egyptian one was a big problem. Thanks to this deal, a British lord and a British newspaper would profit from Egypt's antiquities. For many, it seemed like another colonial enterprise. Just as the country achieved some political independence, the old attitudes continued to appear. It is important to keep this in context. The idea of selling rights to an English paper for an Egyptian discovery was understandably controversial. Another paper, the Daily Express, published a scathing criticism of the choice. In one article, they said, quote, It is difficult to approve the manner in which he, Lord Carnarvon, has seen fit to exploit his discovery. The tomb is not his private property. He has not dug up the bones of his ancestors in the Welsh mountains. He has stumbled upon a pharaoh in the land of the Egyptians. End quote. Essentially, the decision to grant one paper the right to publish everything, that seemed unfair. Carnarvon did not own the tomb. What right did he have to decide this kind of agreement? Additionally, the exclusive contract with an English paper, that seemed inappropriate in context. At best, it was an insult to the Egyptians, the descendants of Tutankhamun's society. At worst, it seemed like theft, another situation in which Europeans would profit from the antiquities of the Nile. After 200 years of colonial meddling, Carnarvon's deal seemed awfully tone-deaf. So the exclusive contract caused an outcry, a controversy, and in the circumstances, Carnarvon must have expected that. The big question is, why did he take this route? Why did he make an exclusive deal with the Times?
Lord Carnarvon did not choose this path lightly. He took weeks to consider different opportunities, and there were multiple factors that went into his decision. Up front, Carnarvon may have chosen the Times out of convenience and speed. Apparently, several media outlets were making grand offers, and it may have been tempting to hold an auction to sell the rights to the highest bidder. But it seems Carnarvon wanted to avoid that. In one of his private letters, he described the situation as follows. Quote, I feel in this matter it would not do to auction the rights of journalistic publication, etc. I am afraid it would make the matter too common and commercial. Therefore, I consider the Times offer the best thing that can be done. After all is said and done, it is the first paper in the world, and even now has greater power and facilities than any other. End quote. So Carnarvon wanted to avoid a crass commercial auction, and on a personal level, he respected the Times as a newspaper. So with public excitement and media pressure growing, Carnarvon may have made this choice to simply get it done. That is a simple explanation, but of course, there is more to it. Beyond convenience, the Times deal was lucrative. Incredibly lucrative. Carnarvon's contract brought big money to himself and to Howard Carter. Up front, the Times paid a sum of 5,000 British pounds. That's 1922 money. Adjusted for inflation, the deal was worth about £291,000 in 2021, or 400000 US dollars. That might not sound like much for the tomb of Tutankhamun, but that was just the down payment. Additionally, the Times would pay Lord Carnarvon 75% of the profits from selling articles to other newspapers. Since the Times had exclusive access, they would need to sell photos and articles to other global partners. Every time they did that, Carnarvon got 75% of the profit. Now, that part of the deal was incredibly lucrative. In the first six months, revenue from article sales brought Carnarvon £11,600. In 2021, that's £676,000 or 927,000 US dollars. Again, that is just the first six months, and news about Tutankhamun would be a hot topic for years following the discovery. From that, you can see how valuable this deal was. Over the years, Carnarvon's estate must have made an immense sum of money. It may seem like we are directing a lot of criticism at Lord Carnarvon specifically, but to be clear, Howard Carter also participated in this affair. He advised on the decision, and he profited from those deals. It is unclear how much came to Carter, but probably quite a lot. He would not have to worry about money for the foreseeable future. It is worth remembering that. Although Lord Carnarvon was officially in charge, Carter had his own contributions to this situation. Then, there was a logistical reason for the contract. If the excavation team made a deal with one newspaper, then Howard Carter would only need to deal with one journalist. That would save time and minimise distractions. Carter could work in peace, while other people took care of the media. You might say the contract gave the Times a middleman role. Other journalists would deal with the Times and not interrupt the dig. That seems to be another reason influencing Carnarvon's decision. 
To be fair, though, that would have worked with any paper. If Carnarvon had sold the rights to an Egyptian outlet, for instance, they could have had the same arrangement. So the logistical reasoning is clear, but it doesn't quite satisfy the criticisms. The financial and logistical factors were big, but in the end, the decisive factor seems to be the pre-existing relationship between the Times and the excavators. Carnarvon knew the management of this newspaper, he dealt with them personally, and he had a high opinion of the Times as an institution. In his earlier letter, Carnarvon had said, quote, After all is said and done, the Times is the first paper in the world, and even now has greater power and facilities than any other. Finally, there was a friendship aspect. Arthur Merton, the Times journalist, was already close with Howard Carter. That would make it easier to navigate the excavation. Not to mention, easier to deal with Carter's personality. The archaeologist was famously irritable or short-tempered. Maybe, if the journalist was a friend, everything would go smoother. These are just a few of the reasons why Carnarvon made that deal. He did not do so lightly. Apparently he consulted friends and associates on the matter. But in the end, he made the call. In late January 1923, Lord Carnarvon signed an agreement, awarding exclusive rights to the Times. Henceforth, they would be the sole reporter for the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Everyone else, including the Egyptians themselves, would have to go through the Times. Did Carnarvon do the right thing? I leave that to you. Certainly, they could have handled the situation better. And the politics of the agreement are questionable at best. Unfortunately, the deal was done. Carnarvon made his contract, and he and Howard Carter profited from the excavation. That is an unfortunate reality of this story. Carnarvon's contract with the Times came into effect in January 1923. From a certain perspective, it was just in time. Crowds were already gathering in Luxor, hoping to glimpse treasures and maybe see the tomb itself. In one of his books, Howard Carter lamented the crush of people. He said, quote, Around the top wall of the upper level of the tomb, there was a low wall, and here they, the visitors and the press, staked out a claim and established themselves, waiting for something to happen. Sometimes it did, but more often it did not. But it seemed to make no difference to their patience. Great was the excitement, always, when word passed up that something was going to be brought out of the tomb. Books and knitting were thrown aside, and the whole battery of cameras was cleared for action and directed at the entrance passage. End quote. So in the Valley of the Kings, the tourists were swarming. No matter what happened, every object received a flurry of attention. And the tourists were not alone. Journalists had flocked to Luxor, hoping to get information. Before that exclusive contract came into effect, the situation was becoming chaotic. An article published in the Daily Telegraph captures some sense of the excitement. As the tomb's excavation began, journalists had descended on the region. And in this article, we learn about the situation. Quote, the scene at the tomb awakened memories of Derby Day, the annual horse race in Surrey. The road leading to the Valley of the Kings was packed with vehicles and animals. 
The guides, the donkey boys, the sellers of antiquities, and hawkers of lemonade were doing a roaring trade. When the last objects had been removed from the tomb each day, the newspaper correspondents began a spirited dash across the desert, upon donkeys, horses, camels, and chariot-like sandcarts, in a race to be the first to reach the telegraph offices. End quote. The journalists crowded the west bank of Luxor. They and tourists swarmed the road that led to the Valley of the Kings. In turn, locals came out to sell objects and amenities, and presumably many families did a good trade off foreign consumption. Then, at the end of each day, when the excavations were winding down, the journalists raced back to Luxor City, eager to send their telegrams and reports. It's quite an evocative image, people hurrying past the cliffs and the tombs and the temples of West Luxor, clouds of dust hanging over the area as cars and animals race along the roads. Every journalist tried to be the first to get their report out. For a while, at least, this part of Luxor must have seemed like the most exciting place on Earth. Chapter 11. Journey to the Crossroads In January 1923, Lord Carnarvon made his deal with the Times. Two months later, the excavation of Tutankhamun's burial started to wind down. The dig season was ending as winter gave way to spring. At this point, the heat was getting too intense for regular work. So, the tomb would close through the summer. Everyone would go home to await the next phase of work. By this point, the dig had become a circus. Journalists were everywhere hoping for news. Politicians were involved, due to the significance and value of the discovery. And through all of that, Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter had been navigating the waters. Business, diplomacy, and dealing were interrupting the work of excavation. For Carnarvon, the wealthy aristocrat, this may have been routine. For Carter, the introverted scholar, it was anything but. I'm skipping over a lot of detail here. But long story short, the strain of this work started to affect Lord Carnarvon and Howard Carter personally. The two had been colleagues and friends for more than a decade. But now, at the height of their fame, and with media besieging them for news, the two men were in trouble. Their relationship started to fray, and on the 6th of March, Carnarvon and Carter got into a ferocious argument. The cause is uncertain, but what we do know is that the argument was fierce and it ended dramatically. Apparently, Carter told Carnarvon to get out and never come back. Ouch. Carnarvon left and returned to Luxor Hotel. During his stay, he had a spot of bad luck. A mosquito landed on Carnarvon's cheek and bit him. Naturally, that caused a small bump or pimple. And when Carnarvon was shaving, he nicked that bump. The wound opened, blood came out, and the mosquito bite became a threat. Mosquitoes are bad news. They can transmit diseases, most notably malaria. And if one does not care for a mosquito bite properly, it may become a serious problem. 
Thus it was with Lord Carnarvon. For whatever reason, Carnarvon did not treat the mosquito bite. Although he had cut it with his razor, he left it alone. That may have seemed like a sensible idea. Let it be. Don't mess with it. Alas, the bite became infected. Soon, a terrible cycle began in Lord Carnarvon's body. Over the next few days, Carnarvon started to weaken. He developed a fever, and his doctor insisted on bed rest. The physician also insisted on a strict diet. In particular, no alcohol. Unfortunately, this was Lord Carnarvon, a man famous for his love of certain pleasures. Carnarvon ignored the doctor's advice, and every day he drank a bottle of high-quality wine. He had brought this wine to Egypt from his own collection, and while stuck in bed, the tired and bored aristocrat insisted on his vintage. Needless to say, that was probably a mistake. Carnarvon remained weak and ill. His daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, wrote a letter to Howard Carter, informing him of the situation. Dutifully, Carter came to visit his old friend. Their recent argument was laid aside. Carnarvon and Carter shook hands and let go their anger. It is good that they did so. Soon after their reconciliation, Carnarvon left Carter and travelled to Cairo. It seems he was heading for cooler climates, somewhere closer to the Mediterranean. A bit of sea air might help, or at least, Cairo would be more interesting than sleepy rural Luxor. Unfortunately, Carnarvon found no rest in the city. Over the next couple weeks, the aged lord grew sicker and weaker. His lymph nodes began to swell on either side of the neck. At this point, Carnarvon was probably suffering a skin infection, and perhaps streptococcic blood poisoning. That may have caused muscle aches, fever, and nausea. And in worst-case scenarios, it could lead to low blood pressure, complications with breathing, and even organ failure. Basically, Carnarvon was in danger, and this became apparent to all around. On the 26th of March, one of Carnarvon's friends wrote a letter to Howard Carter. It said, quote, I am sorry to tell you that Lord C is seriously ill. Eve, Lady Evelyn, does not want it known how bad he is, but that poisoned bite has spread all over him, and he has got blood poisoning. End quote. The bite had gone from a minor irritation to a life-threatening infection. Carnarvon was bedridden, feverish, and in terrible pain. Cooped up in his hotel room, the elderly lord was lying and waiting. So Carnarvon grew sicker and weaker from this infection. That might sound strange to some people. Why would a mosquito bite cause such a problem? Well, as I said, mosquitoes are bad news, and they can wreak terrible havoc in the right circumstances. Also, Carnarvon was particularly vulnerable to this kind of illness. Carnarvon had a kind of wild side, and one of the reasons he came to Egypt was that he had seriously injured himself in a car crash. Carnarvon came to the Nile Valley to enjoy the climate, to get rest, and recuperate with a healthy desert lifestyle. But Carnarvon was never a healthy man. He was always physically weaker than he might have been under normal circumstances. In particular, he seemed quite susceptible to respiratory illnesses and complications. 
Frequently, he found himself fighting with infections or general challenges to his breathing. In short, Carnarvon was not necessarily a healthy man, and when he picked up this infection from a mosquito bite, his body was already vulnerable. So the infection probably progressed more aggressively and quicker than it might have done in normal circumstances. Add to that the Lord's lifestyle, a bottle of wine every single day, even when sick, and you can see how this might have gone much further than it needed to. We should not blame Carnarvon for any of this, of course. They were his choices to make. Nonetheless, if we are looking for supernatural causes for the death, we really do not need to. Lord Carnarvon was already sick before the tomb of Tutankhamun came to light. And when he got infected by a mosquito bite, he was more vulnerable than usual. That is a sad reality of his situation. Through all of this, Carnarvon's daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, was his caretaker. You can imagine how stressful that must have been. Day by day, the 21-year-old was in charge of business, affairs, and general care for her father, and she had to watch as he grew sicker and sicker. In my own life, I have seen two family members succumb to long-term illness. Those final weeks are a special kind of hell. Every day, the sense of impending doom increases, and the whole world seems to shrink to a small group of people and one unhappy bed. Having seen this firsthand, I have the utmost empathy for Lady Evelyn. Such experiences are awful. I would not wish them on my worst enemy. For Lord Carnarvon, the situation seemed clear. Despite his suffering, the man was apparently upbeat. But he knew what was happening. In early April, Carnarvon supposedly told a friend, I have heard the call. I am preparing. So he understood. His time was rapidly approaching. Finally, the end arrived. In late March, Carnarvon developed pneumonia. A week later, he died. On Thursday, April 5th, 1923, George Herbert, the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, passed to the West. Howard Carter's record of this is simple. On the 5th of April, his journal says, quote, Poor Lord C. died during the early hours of the morning. End quote. The man who bankrolled the discovery of Tutankhamun was gone. And for many, that was the end of his story. His death was a loss for family and friends. But life would continue. Work would go on. But then, other people got involved. And some of them felt the need to capitalise on the event. This is where the curse narrative begins. Lord Carnarvon died on the 5th of April. But even before that, comments had started to appear. When the newspapers reported his illness in late March, people began to speculate on a punishment, quote-unquote, for the discoverer of King Tutankhamun's tomb. On March 24th, an article appeared in the Daily Express. It was a letter from a novelist named Marie Corelli. In this article, Ms. Corelli claimed that she had warned Lord Carnarvon about his excavations. The article told how, quote, The novelist, Ms. Corelli, 
says that she wrote to Lord Carnarvon, expressing the wish that nothing unfortunate would chance to him in the pursuit of his discoveries. She adds, quote, I cannot help but think that some risks are run by breaking into the last rest of a king of Egypt, whose tomb is specially and solemnly guarded, and robbing him of his possessions. End quote. Allegedly, Ms. Corelli had written to Lord Carnarvon earlier, warning him about the excavation. Now, after news of his illness went public, Ms. Corelli informed the newspapers. This seems convenient. It sounds like one of those situations where, following major news announcements, people jump in to claim credit or connection. I am not saying that Ms. Corelli was lying, maybe she did write to Carnarvon. But if that's true, no letter has ever come to light, to the best of my knowledge. And her warning, after the illness was made public, seems suspect. I do not mean to criticise this person particularly. Marie Corelli was not the only one to make that sort of claim. Arguably, the person who did the most damage was another author, a man named Arthur Conan Doyle. You probably know him as the author of Sherlock Holmes. Well, Doyle loved the occult. And when newspapers asked him for an opinion, he happily obliged. Apparently, reporters asked Arthur Conan Doyle if he thought there might be a supernatural explanation for Lord Carnarvon's death. Supposedly, Doyle answered as follows. Quote, An evil elemental, or spirit, may have caused Lord Carnarvon's fatal illness. One does not know what elementals existed in those days. The Egyptians knew a great deal more about these things than we do. End quote. Doyle was right. The Egyptians did know more about spirits and elemental forces than him. But the nuances of Egyptian religion, the dangers of the underworld, and the protection of Osiris, those seemed lost on the famous author. Doyle gave his opinion, admittedly with some caution. He said Carnarvon may have died from a spiritual force. But caution did not matter. The papers had what they wanted. Off they went to print their report. It seemed that an authority, quote-unquote, had agreed. A curse could be at work. Oy vey. These stories are important context for the curse narrative. To be clear, I do not mean to drag anyone's name through the mud. Nor do I mean to criticise the idea of curses as a concept. In this case, the problem was not that people thought supernatural forces might be at work. Humans have always thought that. Spirits, demons, gods, monsters, those have explained death, sickness, and bad luck for countless centuries. No, in this case, the problem was media outlets running the curse story indiscriminately. And that was a problem with multiple causes. In 1922, just like today, media outlets relied on attention. Public interest ensured sales, which kept the money flowing and the salaries paid. Then, as now, the temptation to build a story out of an opinion or a rumour was equally powerful. And in 1923, newspapers were starving for news about Tutankhamun. Why? Well, the issue went back to the Times. The British newspaper had an exclusive right to report on the tomb. That was Lord Carnarvon's doing. 
in order to protect the excavation and ensure a bit of peace, he had sold the rights to The Times exclusively. As a result, every other newspaper in the world was cut off from the source. Pretty soon, media outlets were desperate for news about Tutankhamun. And when they didn't have anything reliable to report, well... Well, you can't post news if you don't have any. That's a great idea. I'll make up some news. At least take off your Pulitzer Prize when you say that. Obviously, I am simplifying things a bit. There were various factors that went into Carnarvon's decision, and into the backlash. Politics, social movements, that sort of thing. I will tell all those stories another day. For now, what is important is that the Times had the exclusive rights to news about Tutankhamun. As a result, other papers were left to scramble for information. Anything they could publish, anything with Tutankhamun or pharaohs, was an attractive prospect. That was the situation early in 1923. And when Lord Carnarvon died, the papers saw an opportunity. One reason the curse was so valuable as a story was its freedom. The curse did not involve the tomb or the excavation. Not really. The curse was about history, magic, and belief. So the idea of a curse from Tutankhamun was completely outside of the Times exclusive deal. Hypothetically, any paper could report on this curse with no fear of reprisal. So when Lord Carnarvon fell ill and died, media outlets were ready to capitalise. There is a certain irony to that. Carnarvon had made the deal with the Times. Now, as a direct result of his choices, other newspapers were starving for content. In their hunger, the papers fed on the next best thing. In the end, that thing was Carnarvon's own death. The curse narrative went wild, and it has lurked in the background of pop culture ever since. In the years after Carnarvon's death, other individuals died at various times. All of these deaths were incidental. People die all the time from accidents, illnesses, and other causes. But in those years, any death that was remotely connected to the tomb became part of the myth. Eventually, this curse stretched to a breaking point, and people who had never even been to Egypt but happened to have some minor association, were connected with the curse. Ultimately, it seems that anyone with the slightest link, no matter how tenuous, was suitable for the story. Kind of a six degrees of separation thing. Dig far enough into someone's history, and you could probably find some kind of distant association. It could be a my cousin's friend in Trinidad, that kind of thing. The point is, the curse was a meme and newspapers connected many people to it, no matter how tenuous. As I've said, I don't believe in curses. But I don't want to spend time debunking every aspect of the story. That seems excessive. In the end, the best proof that Tutankhamun's curse is imaginary is how it affected the excavators, the people most involved with the burial. What happened to them? Well, not a lot. Lord Carnarvon died, yes, but he was in poor health, and his lifestyle was not conducive to recovery. 
Beyond that, who else suffered? Not many. Arthur Mace, an Egyptologist who assisted on the excavation, died of pneumonia in 1928. But again, that is a common cause of death, especially for the time. Meanwhile, the photographer Harry Burton, who documented the tomb throughout its excavation, he lived until 1940. Burton died at age 60, despite taking thousands, literally thousands of pictures, of every part of the tomb. So he did fairly well, all things considered. What about Dr. Douglas Derry, the man who unwrapped and studied King Tutankhamun's body? Well, Dr. Derry died in 1969, aged 87. Again, a man who got really close to the king, he seemed just fine. Or there was Lady Evelyn Herbert, the daughter of Lord Carnarvon. Lady Evelyn was part of the initial group, along with Carter and Carnarvon. She was one of the first people to enter the tomb. But Lady Evelyn died in 1980, aged 79. Again, it seems she did okay, all things considered. Finally, there was Howard Carter, the first man to enter the tomb. The one who spent more time than anyone in this monument. Carter touched every object, handled every material. He breathed air, inhaled dust, and generally immersed himself in the royal petri dish. What happened to Carter? Nothing. Carter lived for 20 years after his discovery. And if you believe in curses, Carter certainly tempted fate. At one point, the excavator dismissed the idea of a curse quite bluntly. He said, quote, All sane people should dismiss such inventions with contempt. End quote. So, if anyone was going to suffer an ironic punishment, it would probably be Carter. But nothing happened to him. When Carter did pass away, he was 64 years old, and his death in 1939 was not violent or unexpected. It was cancer, a type of lymphoma. So, Carter lived to a reasonable age and died from health issues that, in the modern world, are sadly common. Of all the people associated with the tomb, the one most responsible was practically unaffected. In the early 1930s, Egyptologist Herbert Winlock studied the curse, quote-unquote. Winlock was a friend of Carter's who had assisted on the dig, and he was curious to see how many people genuinely connected with the excavation, had died. His results were disappointing. When Howard Carter opened the tomb publicly, there were 26 individuals present. In the 10 years after that opening, only 6 had died. That may sound a lot, but bear in mind, the people who got to see that opening were mostly government officials, wealthy socialites, the sort of group who statistically tended to skew older So realistically, 6 out of 26 over a 10-year period? That was fairly predictable. The deeper Winlock checked, the more disappointing were the results. For the opening of Tutankhamun's sarcophagus, 22 people had attended. 10 years later, just 2 of those people had died. So when it came to viewing the king's body, the odds of surviving were even better. Finally, Ten individuals had watched as Howard Carter and Dr. Douglas Derry unwrapped the mummy of Tutankhamun. From those ten people, how many died? Well, 
By 1934, every single person who saw the unwrapping was still alive. Apparently, the closer you got to the king, the better protected you were. So overall, this curse seems to work in reverse. Casual visitors, people seeing the excavation or briefly encountering the artifacts, they might die in the years to come. But the innermost circle, the people who witnessed the hidden chamber and its mummy, the curse seems to have ignored them. And some of those people lived to a ripe old age indeed. So if there was a spirit or an elemental harassing the archaeologists, that spirit was woefully inconsistent in whom they targeted. At the very least, the curse was quite inefficient. Chapter 12 of Bricks and Lost Portraits Following the death of Lord Carnarvon, a narrative developed around King Tutankhamun's tomb. The idea of a curse took hold, fed by newspapers eager for readership. Today, that curse story lingers like a persistent mosquito. Egyptologists do not subscribe to it, even if they occasionally use the term for a bit of easy publicity. Overall, though, the tomb of Tutankhamun remains as it has for the past hundred years. Yes, occasionally someone will visit, and die a short time after. But that doesn't really mean anything. If enough people visit a place, one of them will die in the near future. That's just statistics. There are many tourist attractions with their own curses, quote-unquote. In Venice, the Palazzo Cadario seems to have a curse on its owners. The Walt Disney World theme park in Florida, USA, has a host of curses and spooky stories. Apparently, a ghost named George haunts one of the rides. And the Mayo football team from Ireland has been under a curse since the 1950s, when a priest hexed them for disrespect. So, go anywhere that involves a popular destination, holiday or sport, and eventually you will find a curse story. I am not making fun of these, I'm simply pointing out the obvious. Curses are a popular idea, and they frequently show up to explain bad luck, accidents, or shady theme park management. The tomb of King Tutankhamun, a tourist trap 3,000 years in the making, is just another example of that phenomenon. Putting that to one side though, you may be wondering, did the ancient Egyptians have any genuine curses? Did they ever put spells or hexes or warnings on their tombs and treasures? And was there anything in Tutankhamun's burial that might constitute a curse? The answer is yes, but also no. Let me explain. The tomb of King Tutankhamun held thousands of objects. Some of those items had texts or inscriptions, and those texts generally fall into two categories. Those with a mundane or daily life purpose, and those with a religious meaning. The religious texts are the ones that occasionally get twisted into a curse. But as we will see, they are far less dramatic than you would expect. One of the popular targets for the Curse of Tutankhamun story was a brick, 
a lump of mud shaped into a block that lay within the tomb. According to newspapers, this brick had a curse, warning anyone who tampered with the burial. In the media version, the brick allegedly said, quote, It is I who hinder the sand from choking the secret chamber. I will kill all those who cross this threshold into the sacred precincts of the king who lives forever. End quote. Okay, that does sound pretty cursy. But is it true? Hmm, sort of. The brick is real. It came from a side chamber just off the burial hall. It is a lump of clay with a candle or torch wedged in the top. And on the surface of this brick, five lines of hieroglyphs record a speech guarding the tomb. So part of that report is accurate, but only a part. The whole, I will kill any who cross this threshold thing, that part is made up. 100% not true. The hieroglyphs are far less aggressive than the news reporter claimed. Instead of warnings and threats of violence, the brick simply offers a protection against sand. The hieroglyphs say, quote, I repel and drive one to the flame of the desert. I have set fire to the desert. I have diverted the road. As I am the protection of the Osiris, Neb Keperura, Lord of Eternity and Forever. End quote. What does that mean? Well, it's actually a small chapter from the Book of the Dead. It describes how I, referring to the candle or torch, will burn the enemies of Osiris. The torch will drive away malignant spirits, repelling them, and it will create detours in the road to waylay Osiris' enemies. Now superficially, that might sound like a curse on the living. But in truth, it reflects the underworld and dangers in the next life. Tutankhamun, the Osiris, would travel on dangerous roads. This candle would light his way, burn any foes, and stop them from following. It would also prevent the desert from swallowing the tomb. So the brick does offer protection, just not violent protection. Instead of saying, I'll kill all of you, the text is more along the lines of, I don't like sand, it's coarse and rough and irritating, and it gets everywhere. So the brick is not dangerous, unless you count the candle. Don't play with fire. The hieroglyphs are simply a chapter from the Book of the Dead, helping to secure the tomb in eternity and protect it from supernatural threats. Granted, the Egyptian Book of the Dead is a prime target for horror writers and curse narratives. But the truth is more mundane. Those texts were simply a way of protecting the dead, guaranteeing their survival in the underworld. For those interested, this little text comes from chapter 151 of the Book of the Dead. You can find it online with a simple Google search, and if you want to read the hieroglyphs, they are also available free online. Follow the link in the episode description to visit the Griffith Institute of Oxford and see Howard Carter's notes on every single object for yourself. Once again, the brick records chapter 151 of the Book of the Dead, and the hieroglyphs are available. Link in the description. So that brick with its magical text was a popular but misunderstood item. But that was nothing compared to the big one the main curse associated with the tomb. You've probably heard this curse before, even if you do not realise it. You see, some reporters insisted 
that on the door of Tutankhamun's tomb, a band of hieroglyphs presented a threat. Supposedly, the door said, quote, Death shall come on swift wings to him that toucheth the tomb of the pharaoh. End quote. This curse is popular thanks to Hollywood. It showed up in the 1932 film The Mummy, where a box said, quote, Death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket in the name of Amon Ra. The king of the gods. Good heavens, what a terrible curse. Well, let's see what's inside. Wait! Then, the remake film in 1999 attached the curse to another chest from the lost city of Hamunaptra. That one said, quote, Imod Maktub al-Algamir. Death will come on swift wings to whomsoever opens this chest. The thing is, that curse does not exist. There is no text in the tomb of Tutankhamun that makes such a statement. There is no text in any tomb that says anything remotely like this. So where did this story come from? That one is hard to pin down. According to Thomas Hoving, it first appeared in a newspaper reporting on the tomb. Apparently, the reporter claimed that Howard Carter had found this text on a clay tablet. But to avoid scaring the workers, he had buried it or destroyed it. So the tablet could not be found, and no one could prove or disprove its existence. How convenient. There are two problems with that story. One, Howard Carter was not the type to destroy anything. In fact, by comparison with his colleagues, he was ridiculously thorough at recording and preserving objects. Howard Carter treated the treasures from Tutankhamun's tomb, from the largest to the smallest, with a degree of care and respect that many of his predecessors had not. Secondly, if such a tablet had appeared, none of the workers could have read it. Even Howard Carter was a student, at best, with hieroglyphs. For the most part, Carter relied on other scholars to translate the finds. So, if such an object had ever existed, there would be no reason to bury it, because he probably could not have read it. Likewise, the workers digging in the sands could not have understood the text, so any hypothetical tablet would have gone into a box waiting for translation, and the text would only appear later when scholars got to study it. So, the death on swift wings quote is nonsense. Overall, there are no curses, quote-unquote, in Tutankhamun's monument. Yes, there are texts and art that imply protection, but those tend to focus on the afterlife and the threats of the underworld. They are not nearly as menacing as media would portray. So, when it comes to the curse of Tutankhamun, there is no solid evidence for such a thing. The curses allegedly found in his tomb either do not exist, or they do not say what journalists reported. As for other explanations, like ancient diseases, mold, and so forth, again, those don't seem to have touched the people you would expect. When individuals like Howard Carter or Evelyn Herbert survived for decades, despite being in the tomb a lot, well, there just doesn't seem to be much there. In the end, 
ancient curses are mostly a fantasy. When they do exist, they serve different purposes than fiction would suggest. And when you dive into the details, curses are remarkably ineffective. There is a lot more I could say about these topics, like the context of curse narratives. Where do they come from? How did they get attached to the ancient Egyptians so specifically? Those kinds of stories are fascinating, they have deep roots in the beliefs and habits of various societies. Unfortunately, that is a topic for another day. For now, it is time to move on to one last controversy around the tomb of Tutankhamun. The excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb involved many disputes and controversies. I've skipped over a lot of story here, and I'll have to come back to them in the future. For now, let's focus on one more controversy. In some respects, this last one is actually the most suspicious. Lord Carnarvon's deal with the Times was understandable, albeit tone-deaf and poorly timed. Likewise, the curse was largely a product of media desperation, hunger for news in the wake of poor decisions. Both of those controversies were significant in their own way, but they were, for the most part, distractions, sideshows to the real business of studying Tutankhamun's burial. This last one, though, this last one is genuinely concerning. The issue involved a head, a wooden model of Tutankhamun. It shows the king as a young man or a child. He is bald, with the elongated skull shape we see on his mummy. This head appears to be emerging from a flower, a lotus, a symbol of resurrection, eternity, and the fertility of Egypt. The wooden head is beautiful, a magnificent piece of art. But there is controversy regarding its discovery. In March 1924, Howard Carter was away from Egypt. He had gone to the United States to give a series of lectures about the tomb. While he was gone, the Ministry of Antiquities decided to inspect Carter's work. A government team came to Luxor to check up on the tomb and its contents, and they inspected Carter's workshops, his storage facilities, his laboratories. In the process, they found something suspicious. The team investigated the tomb and the storage rooms. They found that Howard Carter had recorded everything. Every object in every box was labelled. Not just labelled, labelled in triplicate. For every object, there was a note on the item itself, a note in the box on which it lay, and a note in a book, Carter's record of the finds. In other words, the excavator had been meticulous, impressively so. With three records for every item, there was no chance of confusion. Everything was documented. Well, everything except one. At the back of the storehouse, there was another box. This one had the label, Red Wine. But when the inspectors opened it, they did not find bottles of vino. Instead, they found a head. The wooden head of King Tutankhamun, emerging from a flower. The head lay in a nest of bandages and cotton. It was neatly packed, clearly ready for travel. And yet the item did not have a label. There was no record on the object itself, or in Carter's book. And the box in which it lay simply said red wine. Nothing more. No other information. You can imagine the reaction. 
Immediately there was an uproar, as inspectors believed that Carter had packed this head away, intending to steal it. Carter's associates, and some of the government officials, tried to calm the situation down. They tried to find a logical explanation why the head was in a box, packed but unrecorded. Perhaps Carter had forgot. Perhaps he was planning to record it, but got sidetracked by other concerns. Maybe the head jumped into the box by itself? Obviously this did not work. The inspectors quickly reported the issue, and they even sent a telegram to Egypt's Prime Minister. The situation did not look good. Carter's allies sent their own message. This part is quite fun. You see, to keep things secret, Carter's friends sent a letter in code. At the time, some organisations used secret codes for emergency situations. If you needed to communicate quickly and privately, those codes would do the job. So Carter's associates transmitted the following message. Quote, Transmit Stevens, 08716, Fortnum Mason, 75826, Stop, 19464, Egyptian Committee Members, Stop, Cairo, Stop, 04788, Lord, 44856, from Akhenaten. I'm not reading the whole thing. You get the idea. On the surface, it is gibberish, a kind of numbers station nonsense. Unless you have the translation guide, you will only get fragments. Fortunately, we do have the translation. In full, the message said, quote, Transmit Carter to be kept confidential. Government commission have found behind a tomb for, in case of wine, Fortnum Mason, a sculpture head, a capital piece, unlabeled, made a bad impression on Egyptian committee members. It was announced by telegram to Prime Minister immediately, and sent by express to Cairo. To protect you, ministers have suggested that you bought this for account of Lord Carnarvon, 1923, last year from Akhenaten. Do not know whether they believe that, actually. Send all the information you can relating to origin, if possible. Advise us by letter. If any inquiry is made, we shall be prepared. End quote. In other words, the inspectors had found a piece of sculpture, unlabeled. They had reported it to the authorities, including the highest government officials. Thinking quickly, Carter's allies had proposed an alibi. They suggested that the head did not come from the tomb of Tutankhamun. Instead, Carter had purchased it from an antiquities dealer. If possible, Carter should write back, either confirming this story, or suggesting an alternative. If the government was going to investigate, they all needed to prepare. Carter replied quickly. His explanation was interesting. According to Carter, he had not bought the head. It did come from the tomb. But apparently, he discovered the head in the corridor, the passageway leading to the chambers. It was lying amidst the rubble and debris. And when Carter found it, the sculpture was in terrible condition. It needed restoration and conservation before it could be studied. Carter said that he put it in a box, keeping it safe, until he could restore it. He had not forgotten, he just hadn't got around to it. And he had neglected to make a record, because work on the tomb had quickly overwhelmed those first early discoveries. That, apparently, is why it was in the box, without labels or notes. Carter assured his allies, and everyone involved, he was not stealing it. He just hadn't got around to the project. That was Carter's explanation. Is it believable? 
Mm. Depending which source you read, this can go either way. For Thomas Hoving, Carter's explanation is, quote, unconvincing. He notes how, in all the notes, records, and published material, Carter never mentioned this item. Carter discussed all sorts of objects in his book, including items from the corridor, but the head never appears. And the other accounts from people who visited the excavation discuss objects found in those passageways. But again, that wooden head is absent. When Carter displayed items to visitors, he did not show them the head. So unless he was being extremely cautious, it does sound like he was hiding it. Other historians are neutral on this issue. Nicholas Reeves, in The Complete Tutankhamun, mentions the controversy, but does not comment. The same thing happens in Harry Winstone's book, Howard Carter and the Discovery of the Tomb of Tutankhamun. He records the dispute and its outcome, but he does not comment on the controversy. Finally, Zahi Hawass in Discovering Tutankhamun seems to follow Hoving. He notes the issue, considers the explanation provided by Carter, and concludes, quote, The truth of the matter is elusive, end quote. So we have a tricky situation. On the one hand, it is possible Carter was telling the truth. And overall, his reputation for honesty is strong. On the other hand, the situation was suspicious. The lack of notes is a major problem. Usually, Carter was meticulous, so any gap in his record is suspicious at best. Also, Howard Carter had worked as an antiquities dealer in the past, so it is possible he felt entitled to some small object from the tomb. Whatever the truth, this incident was a serious controversy, and it could have been a major scandal. However, in the end, the Egyptian authorities accepted Carter's explanation. Amid conflicts and legal issues, they decided to let the matter rest. The wooden head was found, it came to Cairo Museum, and it remains there today. Perhaps, for the government officials, the result was most important. Even if Carter had wanted to keep the head, he had clearly failed to do so. Perhaps, for the authorities, it was a case of all is well that ends well. Everyone left it alone, and work carried on. We will never know what happened, not for sure. Perhaps Carter was telling the truth, perhaps he wanted to keep the head. Either option is possible, on the current evidence. If you think he is guilty, please remember that he may be innocent. If you think he is innocent, please remember that he may be guilty. Howard Carter was not perfect. Though he did good work, there is a distinct chance he wanted to take this item. Had he done so, well, that could have been the Nefertiti bust all over again. In November 1922, Howard Carter and his patron Lord Carnarvon opened the tomb of Tutankhamun. Four months later, Lord Carnarvon was dead, a victim of blood poisoning caused by an errant mosquito, and an already vulnerable lifestyle. The death of this lord was a great loss for his friends and family, and it triggered a wave of media speculation surrounding the tomb of Tutankhamun. That news cycle was partly a result of Carnarvon's own choices. 
In the last months of his life, he had sold publishing rights for Tutankhamun's monument to the Times newspaper of London. That decision caused outrage. It was an insult to the Egyptian state, and an affront to their hard-won independence. It was an outrage to other newspapers, who now had to beg and bargain with the Times. These decisions were not taken lightly, but they bore heavy consequences. Carnarvon, Carter, and the Times all grew richer from the deal, but many groups lost out. And in 1923, with the excavation just beginning, such controversies were a terrible disruption. Meanwhile, Howard Carter got himself into trouble. He had a major fight with Carnarvon that almost broke their friendship, and later accusations came forth that he was trying to smuggle or steal a relic. The truth of that matter is lost, and the Egyptian government decided not to investigate further. But the situation does not look good for him. Today, it is barely remembered, even by Egyptologists. But still, the possibility is there. Another controversy connected with the tomb. 